It's Monday, November 27th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 140 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? You hanging in? Happy uh, late Thanksgiving to all of you. It's episode 140, and I'm delighted to say that for this episode, I am joined by saxophonist, composer, band leader, improviser, flautist, Anna Weber. That's Anna Weber uh, killing it back there on tenor. It's a good one today. Episode 140, Anna Weber. Before we get into it, next week, Tuesday, December 5th, are you around? Come out, roulette. This is the last time I'm going to say it. No, I'll probably say it again next week, but... um. My uh, my last show of the year is happening, December 5th, Roulette, Sistema Mundi Totius, four clarinets, two percussionists. Um, I'm, I'm excited about this piece. I've been saying it for the last few episodes, and uh, if you've been thinking about coming to one of my shows, this is the one to come to. It's happening at Roulette. Go to roulette.org. You can get ticket information and, and all that other stuff. If you're thinking about coming out, please do. Today on the show, Anna Weber. Um... I, I don't know when I first became aware of Anna. Uh, she's been living in New York since 2008. She's originally from British Columbia. She, she studied at McGill University. Um, I guess I first started seeing her name around maybe four or five years ago. Uh, and, and she's very, you know, I, I haven't really checked in with her. Uh, someone recommended recently that I check her out. And I got to say, I was pretty blown away. Um, I, I have to say, it's it's not common enough that I hear a sax player that like I, I makes me stop what I'm doing and, and listen and that was certainly uh, the case when when I heard Anna's music and after the conversation that we had which this is really you know this was the first time that that uh, Anna and I had ever spoken she gave me a couple of copies of her recent records um, one record's called Binary, another record's called Simple. They're both on the Skrull label. Uh, you guys might remember my conversation uh, from many years ago with Chris Speed. Um, and it's a trio with Matt Mitchell, who has been on the show a couple of times, and percussionist John Hollenbeck. And it's really amazing, really weirdly rhythmic music, uh, very unique. And it's a band. When you listen to this group play, you know, it's, it's very clear this is a band. It's not a project. It's not people picking up and, and playing for the first time, you know, the day before the recording session. This is really, you know, uh, the sound of three people playing together under a leader who has a very clear concept of what, what they want to hear in the music um, and working to execute it as a group. It's, it's really refreshing music. I have to say it. It's really, really refreshing to listen to this music. Um, and, and all around, Anna is just a really interesting person. Uh, I enjoyed this conversation quite a lot. She's definitely from Canada. Uh, and I guess that just means she's very nice um, and has a bit of self-awareness to her. If you want to find out more about Anna Weber, um, and, and you really should. She's up to great shit. And I'm, I'm happy to you know have finally checked in and, and, and experienced her music. And I look forward to doing much more of that. If you want to find out more about her and see what she's up to, check out some of her records and, and maybe check out a show, go to AnnaKristenWeber.com. That's AnnaKristenWeber.com. If you're enjoying this show, please rate and review it in iTunes. 
Subscribe to it. Um, engage with it in iTunes. That helps. And if you're really, really enjoying it, go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Become a monthly donor. Sign up. Throw in a few bucks. Uh, it really helps. There's a lot of good stuff coming for the show. And, um, you know, get involved. All right. That's it. Um, I hope you guys all had a good holiday. Here's my conversation with Anna Weber. Started looking again on the internet for like more information about cons and realized that at the time that they made my saxophone they were also they were making high-pitched and low-pitched instruments and so the high-pitched ones were tuned to a 456 of all things and then the low-pitched ones were tuned to you know probably not actually 440 but something that we can get to 440 right because <laughs> it just wasn't standardized at the time for saxophones i guess i'm not really sure if it was a marching band thing or what but i watched recently a video on youtube of like the con factory uh-huh when it was like swinging like where it was like illinois or something like that or idaho uh i, know really I actually, I actually but, don't know yeah <laughs> uh, but it was like you know like a like a real american company for a while with like american workers like in that in that time and I'm kind of like few, you know. I'm I'm like a, a borderline obsessive Lester Young fan, uh-huh. and so people are like, "Oh, you should just buy a con from like the twenties oh, yeah, or thirties. Totally. I mean, the 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 saxophone that I played is one that Lester Young also played. Yeah, yeah. And do you are you do you feel like you can channel that? Oh, when I first bought it, I was like, "Oh, that's all you yes. wanted to do." <laughs> <laughs> and even so, the neck strap, um, you got the-, the loop for the neck strap is significantly higher on these old horns than it is on modern horns. And I actually had mine modified so that I can use a normal neck strap and not feel like I'm choking myself. Right. But when I first got it and I hadn't had that done, I realized, oh, actually, if I like push it out to the, the side a little bit, it's sort of easier. Yeah. That's really funny. He, or that horn. So you bought a $300 con on uh-huh. eBay. Yeah. And it was unplayable when you got it? Well, I took it out of the, the crate that it came in. Uh-huh. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, basically, not all of the pads are kind of ripped, and right. Yeah, it was unplayable, but I could get like single notes to come out. Sure. Some, some of them, and I put my setup, my you know, my mouthpiece and everything on it, and I just like from the first note, I was like, okay, this is gonna be cool. That is so. <laughs> yeah, it had like instantly. It was the sound that I wanted in a saxophone. Um, yeah. So it's it's funny to hear that. I just was like, <laughs> I'm in this weird phase right now where, um. Years ago, when I was playing that sax, uh-huh. uh, I was playing one day and something wasn't quite right, so I started tightening screws, and I threw the whole horn out of whack. Um, and ever since then, I've been super, super superstitious about fucking with screws on instruments. Yeah. But lately, I've, every time I clarinet, which is a super easy instrument to sort of, you know, uh, bend a key or, you know, I go to Midtown, I pay like 80 bucks for them to like screw something real quick. Yeah. So I'm now at this place where I'm like, I kind of want to learn yeah, basic I mean- horn maintenance. I do like a super hack job of basic, basic horn maintenance because especially like you play an instrument that's made in the twenties, shit goes wrong all the time. Right, and it's usually something that's really small, and it's like, okay, do I actually can I afford to spend seventy dollars right. to fix this every time something to tighten a screw yeah. or to you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm not good at it, but I I bought that. Um, there's a music medic 
kit that you can get for I think it's like a hundred bucks. It's for saxophones. Really? Yeah, musicmedic.com, I think. I'm not actually working for them. This is not an advertisement. But it's cool. It's cool. It has like pads, um, springs, right. cork. Like for different sizes, like it has like a really thick cork, it has a um a neck cork. Do you feel like um if you pick up a horn? You pick up your horn uh-huh. and you start playing and something doesn't quite come out right. How confident are you that it's the instrument and not you? Um, I guess it depends if I've been playing a lot recently. <laughs> <laughs> no, generally speaking, I think I, I, I think my first thought is always me. But then, sure. yeah, I, I feel like when you've been playing for long enough and you've worked on certain things, you to be like, okay, well, actually, <laughs> I haven't had my horn looked at in like a year, so maybe it's actually the instrument. All right. Yeah. I mean, I had a conversation with Dave Douglas recently, uh-huh. and um, I mean, trumpet is a, perhaps the most you know pain in the ass uh-huh. <laughs> instrument, but he, even him, he's like, I get up on stage and I never know if the notes are going to pop out right. Yeah, well, trumpet, man, I do not envy people right. who play trumpet it sounds like a much more complicated instrument to keep your chops in shape than well and you know that someday you're gonna lose them yeah right it's like it's like such a tragic <laughs> instrument yeah totally did you was sax your first instrument no flute really well actually i mean technically piano um right and then i played cello and really? then yeah i mean not anymore but sure. when i was in fourth grade I started playing cello. Was that your choice or was that like, that yeah, was yeah. Just sort of? It was totally my choice. Well, my brother played violin and I wanted to play violin, but my parents said, no, we're not having. Just because the sound is so irritating? I well, think they <laughs> just didn't want us to be in competition with each other. That's smart, actually. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, so I played cello for a long time. And then when I was in seventh grade, we had band class. Yeah. So piano or cello, neither piano nor cello would work for that. So then I, I picked flute um and based on i guess i just liked it yeah i don't know um i had a crush on one of the guys who also was playing (laughs) flute (laughs) i can't remember if that had anything to do with my decision but yeah i i really liked flute and um i didn't start playing saxophone until 11th grade um i played alto for a year and then kind of just because i was interested in it and i was getting more jazz um and then in twelfth grade we had we had weird um, jazz bands at our school where it was you you were in Vancouver or a smaller town in the interior of BC called Kelowna. Okay. Um, yeah. So each of our each grade has its own had its own jazz band, which meant that by the time you were in twelfth grade and like half the kids had dropped out of band, you were left with some pretty like mongrelly <laughs> <laughs> instrumentations. So I think my twelfth grade jazz band had like. Two saxophones, five flutes, which is weird. But yeah. my, my band teacher's daughter played flute, so that's why he always had flutes in jazz uh-huh. band. Um, maybe like two trombones, couple trumpets, and like three guitarists. That's standard yeah. instrumentation. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so all of the saxophone players played alto, so there was. I just kind of volunteered to start playing tenor. And uh, did you enjoy alto? I, I kind of hate the alto sax. When I switched to tenor, I I was like, oh. Right. Oh no, this is the one that I should be playing. And and what was that distinction? It just felt like more in the range of an instrument that I wanted to play, which is weird because I still play flute, you know, that's right. like not really I guess saxophone and flute are both kind of primary at this point, but Really? I didn't um, realize that. Yeah, yeah. I play them both yeah. um essentially equally professionally and in my practicing. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, they're pretty. Yeah, they're pretty far from each other. Yeah, yeah. In terms of in terms of range, but for whatever reason, when I played, when I picked up the tenor, I, was, I remember talking with my saxophone teacher and being like, "Yeah, it, it just feels better." And what they say? He was like, "Yeah, of course it does." Here's the tenor player. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of my favorite sax players you know, throughout history are alto players. It's just, it's one of those instruments that most of the time when I hear people play it currently, mm-hmm. I, I just, I'm not interested. <laughs> and it sounds, I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, I love a lot of alto players for sure. It it did take me a second though, I think, um, to get into alto players. More. As a listener? Yeah, totally. What was it, you think? Um, I don't know. I think, it, I think it's just a an instrument that it's harder to play in tune. It's harder to play with a really good sound than on tenor, which kind of gives you a, a broad range of mm-hmm. uh, or a broad margin for error. Um, so I think there's there's that, but also I think it just took me a while before I found the people that I liked. Yeah, to listen to. it's weird. Alto is one of those instruments that, for me as a listener, the better people, the more accurately and the you know, mm-hmm. quote unquote, better people play it, the less I like it. Yeah, I guess that's also true for me too. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'd rather hear someone like, like Ornette yeah. or or Zorn, you know, who kind of you know just does their thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you skipped a clarinet completely. Yeah, yeah, that's I never, I never move. did the clarinet thing. Unlike most saxophone players, it seems. Right. Um, but no, I did. I did start playing clarinet in college. Yeah. Just because somebody told me that you had to play all, yeah. the, all the woodwinds. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I <laughs> know that's a thing, but... No, it's based on this completely archaic idea that if you're a woodwind player, you're going to play in Broadway shows, which for some people obviously right. is true, but like, right, right, it's right. not the thing that we do. For creative self-expression, it might not be that essential <laughs> yeah, to play totally. every woodwind. <laughs> yeah. So why, do, I mean, I always, I don't know, like whenever I, I hear about people pl- like listening to jazz as teenagers, it's a little strange to me. Mm-hmm. Did, Did uh, you, you didn't do that? at all i mean i was exposed to it i certainly uh-huh. knew enough about who miles davis was who john Coltrane, you know all the, like the the big guys were mm-hmm. but it wasn't like you know it's not something that i craved right um who who introduced you to that music um that's a good question i do think comparatively to a lot of my friends i started listening to jazz much later yeah i mean i know a number of my friends were listening to jazz when they were like 12 or even really? younger yeah yeah um i didn't get into it until i was like 16 or 17 and i mean i think i had listened to it a little bit before that but in terms of like me making a choice to put on a record and enjoying it mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a little bit later um yeah i guess i was i always wanted to play in the jazz band for it just struck me as the cooler band for mm-hmm. some reason so that was kind of a goal before I really liked the music. Mm-hmm. And then there was a combo, a jazz combo, I think, when I was in ninth or 10th grade. And I wanted to do that because you got to... It seemed like the better musicians were doing that. And I <laughs> wanted to be one of the better musicians. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so I think I I got into actually listening to jazz through through playing it without having any idea of what it was supposed to sound like. Mm-hmm. And then I had these friends who just got obsessed with it. So I had this this band that by the time I was in 12th grade, they were like, my friends were just like obsessively listening to records and we would rehearse a couple times a week at my friend's house. Like sessions? Um, yeah, I guess so. But it was just like, there were five of us in my hometown that were like really into jazz. So we would get together and like listen to everything and they would go off and like transcribe stuff and listen to it on their own. Yeah. I, I wasn't really doing that. I was like, yeah, I really like this music, but I'm actually going to be listening to, uh, 
whatever shitty like post grunge stuff i was listening to uh i liked kind of bad um emo stuff Uh like jimmy eat world and oh that's uh, pretty shitty yeah totally yeah Uh, our lady peace i really like yeah 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 okay yeah yeah that stuff's not very good (laughs) no not at all (laughs) this is the skeletons in the closet coming out right away but when you you know it's weird i only i've been listening to jazz music actively since i was like 19 Mm -hmm. 37 and i'm only now like do i feel like i'm really getting into it Mm -hmm. and i feel like jazz there's so many different places to sort of like there's a lot of different ways you can get into it. And I'm just now in the last like maybe three or four years really enjoying listening to standards um, mm. and listening to them comparatively, how different people have approached them. And like, was that, were, were you checking out standards? Were you, was it just the, the sound of the music? Was it hearing the, the improvisations? Oh, yeah. I mean, all of that. I, um, yeah, I wanted to be a straight ahead jazz player for yeah. a long time. I went to McGill University uh-huh. um, in Montreal, which is a pretty, like, or at least at the time was a very, like, standard-based school. Um, I, start, I started writing my music while I was there, too, but, yeah, I just, I wanted to play well on standards, so I was listening to all, like, the classic recordings of things and checking out how different people played them and what the different variations and chord changes were and all that kind of stuff and then i went to manhattan school for a master's degree which oh, God, is like yeah. even more uh it's like a classical school well the i mean i guess the approach to jazz within the within the context of that school is sort of like classical right um in that it's yeah very much like based on the tradition and uh-huh. yeah what, what musicians were you at the time are the ones that really you feel like were really impactful where you heard them play and you said that's Oh, I mean, that's a huge, that's like six years of my formative years. So a, a bunch of people. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, the first saxophone that I, saxophonist who I really fell in love with was Coltrane. Yeah. Um, which is so cliche, but I mean, <laughs> he's I mean, awesome. It's, he, it's, it's, it's not cliche because it's like, there's still no one better than him. Yeah. Totally. So <laughs> like he's still like the best sax player ever. Yeah. I believe I believe that. Um, and then, yeah, a little later I got into Lee Konitz and Warren Marsh, oh, and yeah. that was a huge, huge thing for me. Um, and Wayne Shorter as well was, I guess, sort of in between those. Mm-hmm. It was like a bridge somehow. Uh, Sonny Rollins, of course, was mm-hmm. huge, huge guy for me. Joe Henderson. Um yeah, but I was I was listening to mostly saxophone players, and then I was transcribing all these saxophone players on flute because I, you mm. know, I was playing, I was playing saxophone, but I was a jazz flute major. Really? <laughs> Deep secrets. Jazz flute is uh, not such a, a, a hip. No, instrument. <laughs> it's not the most popular uh, way to approach a specific instrument. No, no, um, and I was well aware of that. But I, uh, yeah, I was just transcribing saxophonists on flute. And I figured, like, I kind of was, like, my secret was that I could play saxophone language on flute and not sound derivative, whereas if a saxophone player did the same thing, they would sound derivative. Yeah, it's like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, this is, I've unlocked the secret. You've got your thing. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a a real thing. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, the flute is honestly, that's another instrument I've been thinking about, like, picking up. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because you can do such scary, awesome stuff with it. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like a really evocative instrument, mm-hmm. and also like it's pretty easy to carry around. Oh yeah, 
Oh my <laughs> god, I love having the flute gigs. That just where I only have to play flute. You get to play gigs where you're only playing flute. Yeah, oh though. But I also play alto flute and bass flute. So now a lot of right. people are like, "Cool, let's get Anna and let's get her to bring three instruments rather than mm, one." No, Which no, no. I mean, I love playing all sure. of them, but you know, then it, and then they'll write like another part for tenor, and then I'm bringing four instruments. And, you got to be kidding me! Yeah. No, no, you, you got you got you got to talk to those people. Like, if it doesn't fit in your messenger bag, like it's not going to be written into the part. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's so so did you hear i mean who like who are the cool jazz flute players is it Youssef latif or yeah i mean i certainly like Youssef latif the the guy who kind of changed my world was uh gary thomas i'm a huge um yeah not many people I mean, have well so he's he doesn't really play publicly much as oh. far as i'm aware these days he lives in baltimore okay um he's been working at peabody for I think until last year, um, okay. for a really long time. And there's like a, generations of like Baltimore saxophone players who've studied with him. And, hmm. but the, yeah, he was the first flute player I heard and a good friend of mine who or now is a good friend of mine at the time was my professor when I was in my freshman year, um, gave me this record with Gary Thomas on it. And he was the first flute player that I'd heard play with El vibrato. Mm. And I was like, Oh, that sounds cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was playing, you know, he's kind of like M-Bass right. um, vibe, so playing a lot of chromatic language and, you know, playing in a way that I actually thought was interesting on flute. Yeah. So that was pretty pivotal for me. I think when I, when I heard Gary Thomas play flute, I was like, oh, okay, flute is a legitimate instrument that can sound awesome. Yeah. And I wasn't kind of hiding it. I mean, I couldn't hide it, the fact that I played it, but I, I wasn't like wishing that i played saxophone or something that right mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah that's that's important yeah totally to hear someone do something you're like like to cross that bridge that yeah. like it's been like a mystery especially when you're playing an instrument that's basically just mocked in pop culture <laughs> yeah completely yeah I and mean, I, I was like studying i forget when american pie came out but i think i was in high school jesus and then christ yeah that so that and then also the um, anchorman anchorman that was a little bit later but like both of those things people were like Oh my God! You play jazz flute. Have you seen this movie? Like, I swear that my yes. my first response to that though is yeah. like, oh, I play flute, and you watch shitty movies. It's <laughs> like both those movies are completely idiotic. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. The fact that's all you know about a flute is enough for me to know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I forget what your question was, but uh... <laughs> uh, so do I. But the, I mean, the flute is. Like, did you did you enter into the classical world with it at all? No, not at all. Really, yeah. I mean, I because I was. I guess I had been playing flutes in seventh grade and then wanted to be in these like jazz combos in high school because they were cooler and I played some piano, but there was already a guy who was a little bit better at piano, like he knew some voicings and uh-huh. I didn't know any voicings. So I was like, oh, it's fine. I'll just play flute. Um, so yeah, that's how I, I just was improvising on flute all through high school. And then it was so much as like, there was no question as to which was my stronger instrument by the time I was applying for college. Yeah. You know, it was like... I'd been playing saxophone for a year mm-hmm. and then I'd been playing flute for like five years. Mm-hmm. So like it was not, not a competition. So I just applied on flute to everything. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, so I studied jazz flute and I took some classical lessons over, over the years. I've, I, I certainly feel like I have taken enough where I know how to play the flute correctly. Um, but I also I mean, from feel a classical like, classical perspective, I th- I hope so. I yeah. don't really think I, 
I mean, I think probably a lot of classical flute players would just be appalled by my sound and my <laughs> technique. I don't know. Because I really studied with saxophone players for like, yeah. that's what I did. I was studying jazz, so I was taking lessons with people who were just playing saxophone, and I would translate whatever they were saying to my instrument. Um, yeah. Oh, I get horrified when I see other clarinetists in the audience. <laughs> I hate it. Really? Yeah, it just makes me feel so self-conscious. Because, did you do classical no. stuff? Okay. No. Yeah. No, I'm self-taught. I mean, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Right, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I don't really get nervous if I see other flute players in the audience because I feel like, you know, when you're an improviser, you've, you have a voice that's different than what people do. But if I ever do a gig where I have to play, like, sort of classical right. stuff, I get really nervous. Yeah. That's totally my, like, even though I think I can do it to some level, I just, I'm, I know there's a lot of holes in my knowledge of the instrument itself. Uh-huh. from a classical perspective but, you know? but i feel like a lot of the stuff i mean i could be very wrong a lot of the stuff you do like like there's something i, I know like you you did some stuff with harris right harris Eisenstein. Mm-hmm, yeah you know and that's like you know he's a composer yeah who's writing for you know classical instruments mm-hmm. but he's also from a jazz background primarily yeah totally so it's it feels like a good yeah i mean that that's not something i get nervous about the flute yeah. stuff in it's more uh the very occasional time that i play with mostly classical musicians yeah um yeah and but then, then you just remind yourself that they can't improvise and <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah i mean i just get i get like really in my head about intonation and stuff like that yeah um oh, yeah, attacks sense. and i don't play with vibrato i because as i said gary right. thomas heard him when i was my first year of college so it's like cool not learning that skill <laughs> and then just never did so I, it's so funny that you say that because <laughs> when i think about vibrato like you know as a clarinetist like uh-huh. you are vibrato is sneered at oh completely. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so anytime thing. i find myself playing with a vibrato which is all the time mm-hmm. in my head i'm like oh, i'm just playing like an idiot you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's sort of probably playing with vibrato and clarinet is the same thing as not playing like, with vibrato right. on flute um, right yeah so like i you know, even playing in some some people's like jazz large ensemble music where they have flutes playing long tones. I'm like, I wonder if they want the vibrato sound. Well, I'm not gonna do that. So has anyone ever said, "Hey, come on"? No, no, nobody has. Fuck it. So I figure, I'm, right? I figure I'm fine at this point. Yeah, yeah. I I was you know I was hanging out once many years ago with a composer, an older composer who I really respect, mm-hmm. and he made some comment about um, woodwind players. Uh, Relying on vibrato way too much, mm-hmm. and how it's all just like a cheap imitation of a dramatic Coltrane entrance, <laughs> and it's like it's it shook me to my core, and I still hear it. It's like that's that devil's always sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's that necessarily, but I no, do think. Was... Okay, so if you have to play, as as a clarinet player, I'm sure you're aware of this. If you were playing parts in a band a larger group like say four horns or something Mm. near the top voice Mm. if you're at it if if even if you're not the one who's out of tune if somebody's out of tune you sound out of tune Mm -hmm. because the top voice just sounds out of tune Mm -hmm. and then so if you play with vibrato on flute and you're playing the top voice you can kind of like you kind of hint at intonation (laughs) you don't notice as much if you don't play with vibrato and then you're like it sounds out of tune you're just like yeah it's just i suck what is yeah right so that's that's my own neuroses yeah yeah about all of that stuff. <laughs> I, I want to go back to this 300-hour saxophone <laughs> yeah, because sure. you, you mentioned that. I mean, I just bought a new. I just got a bass clarinet the other day. Oh, right. Uh, my second attempt at it. I used to have one, and it was no good, so I got uh-huh. rid of it. And now I've got one, and I'm really sort of committing to it. Um, 
Three hundred dollars for a sax. Mm-hmm. What What was the sax you were playing before that? Uh, much more expensive than that. <laughs> like a, I was playing a a Yamaha, uh-huh. a new Yamaha that I bought. I guess in college, like my it was the first saxophone that Just I owned. Very responsive, focused instrument. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's a it's a really good saxophone in terms of just like everything is perfect technically. Um, it plays in tune throughout the range of the instrument. It's easy to play, but it doesn't have this like the sound. It doesn't have you have. There's I no was vibe. working. I was working really, really hard to get the sound that I wanted. And when I switched to my current horn, it was like, oh, I don't have to work. It's just that sound is there. Yeah, already. but it's smart to start on a sterile horn. I think. Yeah, I mean, I f- I don't regret it at all for sure. I bought it because I didn't know anything. Right. You know, I just figured I played a Yamaha flute, so I would play a Yamaha saxophone. They're good. Yeah, yeah. No, I I mm-hmm. when I really got serious about the clarinet. I bought a Yamaha mm-hmm. clarinet that, um, and I was really, uh, you know, for all the mistakes I've made, like, I was, I'm happy for the fact that I was very aware, like, I just want a horn that I know, like, it's got its bases covered. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to be playing on, it's like some beautiful old horn that has these weird idiosyncrasies that I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, you need to get your fundamentals and your baseline straight. Yeah. And then you should play a horn that has more vibe to it. Yeah, I think I think it's, uh, well, it certainly makes a lot of things easier. If you're getting your intonation together and you're getting your intonation together on a horn that's really weird, then yeah. it's going to well, be I mean, Especially harder. when you consider, like, and this is this <clears throat> lifelong thing of, like, the reed mouthpiece ligature is enough, mm-hmm. you know, variability to keep you sort of reshaping your sound for your entire life, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, totally. Yeah. So you just need something that's like fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um But yeah, the I mean the Yamaha worked really well for a really long time. I switched cuz I was I was just kind of getting to the point where I needed something that was going to give me that sound that I wanted without fighting so hard. Mm-hmm. Um and I'd been looking at Mark Sixes for a long time like oh they're so expensive. So expensive. Yeah. You know, or like balanced action, super balanced actions right. and kind of like lusting over those and I was just like ah oh, there's no way I can afford that. And then I started started like trying out friends horns who were playing cons. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> yeah, actually it's sort of Patrick Briner's fault that I play a con. I oh really? Yeah, cuz I had my horn was broken and I borrowed his on a gig and um i was like oh okay this is awesome maybe i'll buy a con and yeah then, yeah that's what i did <laughs> you i mean you're just igniting this like i'm like almost on ebay right yeah, now buy a like, con. Buy a con. but can, are they really like I, you know this is like total sax dork talk yeah. i don't care like can you like reliably if i bought like <laughs> like a 10m or a naked lady from like the 30s you know, I could reliably know that I'm going to get something that will need some work, but is going to be a cool horn. Honestly, I have no idea. I I don't know how consistent they are. I feel like I lucked out with mine. I know that there's definitely a range in terms of responsiveness. Uh-huh. The low end on my horn, I love. Um, it's got I that sort of like whispery, like it's just really big and round and warm. I've played yeah. other people's horns where it wasn't that wasn't the case, um, but they're all really good. Other people's cons who that I've played. Um, yeah. The, the things that I watch out for was, which I was getting neurotic about after I bought mine was the high pitched versus low pitched mm-hmm. thing. So you want the low pitched and it has a little L on the back right above the serial number. So if you, ha- if they have a <laughs> picture of the, of the back of the instrument, uh-huh. there'll be either an H or an L. So make sure it's one with an L. Um, and then the other thing is, 
I guess they were calling C melody saxophones tenors at that time. What? <laughs> yeah. So you might end up with a weird C melody sax. I, well, that's I was worried that right. like it was three hundred dollars. What if it's actually like a high pitched C melody saxophone? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Well, what the fuck do I do with that Jeez. instrument? Um. So yeah, I. Wait, so I'm just keep an eye out for those things. So when did you move to New York? You came here for Manhattan School of Music? Yeah, I moved here in 2008. Right. Um, Probably with some idea that this was the place to be? Yeah, that was why I moved here. And I stayed for three years, and then I got scared and left, and I moved to Berlin for a year. <laughs> Berlin. And then, yeah. And you then can't I, make it there. You can't make it anywhere. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so I, I moved back. I, I was just in Berlin for one year. But basically, I... I went to grad school here and then was kind of struggling to find work. And were you, were you gigging while you were in grad school? Not really. I had some bands yeah. with friends, and we were like aggressively booking shows and playing to audiences of zero. Where? Um. Oh, all over the place. Like the Brooklyn, like <laughs> I Beam and I Beam. Well, Douglas Street. Yeah. That like just places that I may have closed. Just like that spot, puppets. In uh, oh, yeah. Park Slope for a minute, right? Uh, the Brooklyn Lyceum, uh huh. Um, Parkside Lounge had really. Oh, that's, jazz a, that's, a ter- that's a terrible place to play. What was that spot on on Houston Street? On Houston Street? No, there's another one. Local. Local two sixty nine. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible that one, place. That one, the guy told me they I owed the money after we we played because <laughs> really because they, they would take everybody's like who who are you here to see thing at uh-huh. the door and then like even though there were a bunch of people there for our set they were all there to see the next set so the guy told me that because we didn't bring enough people that i owed him money i didn't pay him no but. <laughs> no there's those pla- i mean i <laughs> i like drinking at the parkside lounge uh-huh. i would never bring my horn into that place there was nobody there yeah. when we played there yeah i mean i was just playing with my friends and then which was fun i mean i that's what i'd always done so i i wasn't like thinking there's anything wrong with it other than just like man it's really hard to get people to come out to your shows mm-hmm. um the real the reason i moved was because i was like because i was working this full-time office job to make ends meet and just hated it it's depressing um and w- was thinking you know if if i can if the only reason i can stay in new york is or the only way i can stay in new york is having a job like this it's not worth it to me to stay here yeah at all i want to you know, be making music because that's why this city is good. Yeah. Um, for me. Uh, yeah. So I had a bunch of German friends, and my best friend at the time was moving back to Berlin. So I just was like, "Cool, I'll move to Berlin." And I did. I applied for school there. There was a one-year master's program, another master's program that I did, mm-hmm. um, which was awesome and totally changed my life. And um, you were just there for a year. Yeah. And a year was enough. You said, "Oh, I got to go back to New York." <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't know when I moved there. I was like, "Maybe I'll just stay forever. Maybe this is." But it. what's it like there? I, I, I just, I have this thing, and you know, granted, like I'm, a, I'm not like a very good person, but like, uh-huh. whenever I hear people like, "Oh, I'm gonna move to Berlin," I just like, it's a cliche, right? I was just like, why? Like, it, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. I don't care if, yeah. like, I don't give a sh- Berlin. There's, there's like, there's nothing to it. You know, New York's a tough city, uh-huh. and that's what makes it great. <laughs> I mean, Berlin's really cosmopolitan. There's people there from all over Europe. Um, I moved because I was learning German, and my best friend was German was moving back. Um, So I was like, this could be fun. I liked hanging out there when I'd I'd visited before. Um, And then I applied for this, like, one-year 
master's program at the Jazz in Stuperlin, and it was basically free. I mean, I think right. it costs like 270 euros a semester, but That's that included insane. your unlimited uh, ride card for the for the subway yeah okay so that's a good so reason I was to like, move <laughs> seems like it'll work that's pretty good actually yeah, yeah I, I, I might yeah, yeah so i've and my like the studies that i did was basically just like i took a less a couple lessons a week and then hung out i mean i wrote a lot of music that's i was more or less so doing, it was like an artist resident yeah i was more or less doing composition degree so i just like wrote and played did you tour much around europe at the time yeah well that's sort of where i started getting called as a side person for stuff and yeah. was also just like having this step away from new york made me realize what was important to me about a lot of things one was one was like when i was living here before i was living uptown i went to manhattan school i would come to brooklyn and see shows that were you know more experimental and really like connect with that musically but it was really hard for me you know it took like over an hour on the subway and i wasn't yeah. used to new york at that right. point so i was like ah, this, i'll just play straight ahead jazz with my friends and i was having a good time doing that but when i lived in berlin i kind of reassessed what was important to me and realized that actually the stuff that was important to me was the more experimental stuff mm-hmm. so i really spent time developing that side of my playing yeah and what were you listening to um i mean all sorts of stuff a lot of a lot of like contemporary classical music and um yeah, I mean, I think I didn't start listening to Tim's Bur- Tim Burns music until I was there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't so much as what I was listening to as who I was surrounded with. And um, just the scene in Berlin was sort of defaulted to a, a much more experimental mm-hmm. thing than at least who I was surrounded by in New York. Um, so... Yeah, that was really important. And then it also let me kind of take a look. Okay, I do not want to have a full-time office job. That is not something I want to do. When I, If I were to move back to New York at any point, I would want to have something that's more flexible that would allow me to, like, practice sure. and do sessions in the weekdays, you know, and not just feel like I am I can't do anything unless if it's evenings or Saturdays and Sundays. Mm-hmm. So when I did move back, I worked in a coffee shop for a year, which was awesome. I could. You liked it? I mean... I wouldn't want to do it now, but, sure, sure. <laughs> time, but yeah, it was sure. certainly preferable to, yeah, hundred percent. Cause I had my afternoons free. I could do sessions. I could, I would go to shows and like sleep for three hours and then wake up at five 30 to go to my yeah. coffee shop job, but you could drink coffee all day. So it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, so you, so you go to Berlin and you come away with sort of a more focused idea of mm-hmm. what you want for yourself, what totally. you just, you, re- you realize you need in your life. So you move to Brooklyn. Exactly. Forget about that uptown shit. Yeah. <laughs> and did you already have like some people in place that? Yeah. I mean, you know, I had all these friends that I'd gone to grad school with. Um, so that was, I didn't feel like I was moving to a new city for sure. Yeah. You, you already lived I was, here. Yeah. yeah. So I had, you know, like a lot of really close friends already. Um, so wait, you came back to New York in what year? Like 2000? 2012. Okay. Yeah. Um, I made a lot of new friends as soon as I moved because I was, you know, my focus was on playing a different kind of music. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't feel like a hard move for sure. I felt like I was, it was exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like I was, if like going to Berlin was a really good decision in my, in my life, moving back to New York was like just kind of a, a continuation of that yeah. really good decision. Did you come armed with um, uh, like compositions or musical ideas that you specifically mm-hmm. wanted to, to realize? Well, I'd started a band when I was in Berlin, um, the Septet. And had recorded that as part of the master's program right before uh-huh. I left. Um, 
and then just like kind of sent it off to a bunch of labels and as soon as I moved back got a call from one of the labels saying they wanted to release it which is this record label Pirouette Records okay um they it's a US label no it's a Munich based label okay they kind of stopped doing stuff for about a year I just heard that they're now functional again um I don't really know what the full story is I haven't talked to the the guy who runs it in a bit but um yeah, it, it's a really good label. They pay for stuff. Okay. So, <laughs> right. like, they have a budget. That yeah. It's, um, I guess, kind of a labor of love from a guy who actually has a real business, and then he... So he can subsidize puts, it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, and, it, yeah, so it was, like, kind of my dream label, actually. At the time, there was, like, aside from, like, ECM and Winter and Winter, yeah. was, like there's like two other labels in Germany that would pay for everything. And this is one of them. And they called me back. So it's amazing. Yeah. I moved back and like kind of that side of my, um, life was felt really exciting, you know, cause yeah. I then was releasing that and was coming back to, I was going back to Europe and touring with this band and I only had to pay for my own flight cause everybody else lived there. It's amazing. And then I, I toured with that music here with a different band with us. Musicians. Um, yeah. Yeah. To, yeah, it was fun, but it, kind of lasted one tour and then I didn't do that again. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I wasn't necessarily armed with new compositions for like a unknown instrumentation or whatever, but mm -hmm. I, I just, I did have like some things that I was excited about. Yeah. In my it was a vehicle for, for playing. And, mm -hmm. and when you came back, was it easier to book gigs that were, um, more satisfying? Than yeah. The well, I think I just got involved with a community of people that were, really supportive yeah. and would go to everybody everybody else's shows who are these like, people um i guess like the people that i started hanging out with right away are like kate gentile uh -huh. dustin carlson adam hopkins eric trudell uh -huh. um that sort of yeah there's like a bunch of people who were about my age who were like playing the kind of music that i played yeah and good people good yeah, musicians totally yeah I mean, there's a lot of other people around that, but sure. I ended. I lived with Kate and Dustin for a year, um, uh -huh. like a couple, a few months after I moved back, we moved in together, and yeah, it was just like there was a good community and people who like were writing music that I thought was really interesting and was pushing me to write different sorts of music. And it's the best. Yeah, it's really the best. Yeah, so I felt like it wasn't as futile, you know, like instead of just booking a show at some spot and like nobody being there to book a show as part of somebody's series and there'd be a couple other bands on the bill and like, you know, you play and there'd be other people there. And feels good. There's yeah, a hang totally. and there's, you there's know, a hang and you meet can, other yeah. people and then you see some bands that you hadn't heard of before. And what are your yeah. favorite places to play right now in New York? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's changing. Or it seems like the venues are changing a little bit. Yeah. Um, I got so angry the other mm -hmm. night. I played um, <laughs> a gig, and I knew it was like a low key thing. Someone said, "Hey, mm -hmm. I, you know, I got a night booked. You want to drop in and do something?" And I'm working on some new solo stuff. So I was like, "Cool, I'll come play for you know 25 mm -hmm. minutes, try some solo stuff." And it's a place where a lot of people are playing now. It's not mm -hmm. known to be this like presenter of great music. It's you know a bar with a back room. Yeah. And I was so angry by the condition that the space was in mm -hmm. and the attitude of the person who was like working that night 
that I kind of like threw a temper tantrum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was like all this garbage on the stage, including like a half drink bottle of Gatorade that I, Ugh. as hard as I could, kicked <laughs> off the stage against the wall. Yeah. You know, and it was just like this is not worth it to me. Yeah. And I don't know, like I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this balance out. Like I don't want to be one of these prissy people that only plays when conditions are 100%, you know, perfect. I want to play because playing is good for me, but it felt really undignified to do that to myself. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting more and more picky about where I like playing. Yeah. I certainly know where I don't like playing. Yeah. Uh, which I think is also somewhat in bad taste to just like list venues that yeah, I hate we, on, uh, no, on we don't. a podcast. But uh, I really like playing the stone. Love playing the stone. Of course. Yeah. The stone is not going to be there in its current condition right. in a few months. It's supposed to be nicer. I haven't even been to the new space yet. I've walked past it. Um, yeah. 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 It's from everything John tells me, it's like the clean, updated, nice version. And that instead of the Yamaha, they're going to have a nine foot Steinway. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That's so awesome. That should be better. I yeah. Think. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jazz Gallery. Yeah. Cornelia Street Cafe. Greenwich House is nice. Yeah. Um I mean, you know, iBeam is has its has its place. Mm-hmm. I do like playing it. Uh Corzo. Mm-hmm. I like what do all these places have in common? Um I think they all have grand pianos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess there's a you can listen to music there without feeling like there's a bar that's making noise. Yeah. Corzo is sometimes can get loud with like the first set. There can be like the dinner crowd still there. Sure. But, um, but you get the feeling that the music's an important part of the space. Absolutely. They're not yeah. doing you a favor by letting you play. Yeah. I hate venues like that. Yeah. For sure. I also like venues that are generally speaking somewhat easy to get to where I know my friends will come. Right. Um, right. So when did you, because you have this band with um, Matt Mitchell and, was it Hollenbeck? Yeah. When did that start? Um, so Hollenbeck was teaching at the school in Berlin that right. I was at. Does he live there? He did. Okay. For a long time. He lives in Montreal now. Oh, um, oh wow. Yeah. But, yeah, so I I studied with John um, and had done some playing with him, kind of begged him to play with me when I was Were you a Claudia Quintet fan? Oh, totally, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, yeah, I sort of begged him to play with me when I lived, when I was going to school there and studying with him, and he acquiesced. And then I had got some grants from the Canada Council for the Arts to write music, and I um, decided to write music for a new trio mm-hmm. and wanted to do something with um, John, for sure. And then I met Matt pretty soon after i moved back mm-hmm. and just i mean he's a great a monster yeah totally and yeah we sort of took to each other right away um, he's a pretty likable guy yeah totally yeah um so we became friends and yeah it just seemed like that was going to be a really interesting fun band and mm-hmm. and we're like at, by the time i kind of asked them to do it i felt like i knew them both well enough where i could write for them well mm-hmm. um yeah, so that started, I guess that was 2013 when we recorded the record, and then it came out. The you guys just year. have one record? No, there's two. Yeah. Yeah. So the first record, Simple, was recorded in 2013, and then came out the next year. And then, yeah, we did like a ton of touring um, 
leading up to recording the second album a ton in like my my sense like i don't know we did three tours or something right uh (laughs) each tour lasting about four to five days okay that's a ton of touring (laughs) yeah for me that was a ton of touring especially as a leader like well i was about to ask like do you enjoy being a leader yeah i love it yeah yeah totally do you prefer it to side personing no i mean maybe (laughs) it depends on the project sure no i mean my music is the most important music to me as it should be yeah so having people who i think are total badasses and are like the perfect people to play my music play it a number of nights in a row yeah um that's like that's the best Mm mm-hmm and yeah just hear it like develop and deepen and become something that i couldn't really have imagined when i wrote it right um yeah so i love being leader and i'm yeah like pretty good at some aspects of being a band leader uh, which, which aspects are those organizing things i yeah. guess i'm not good at hustling I'm really not good at that part but i can do like i can book flights and i can manage finances yeah uh yeah so the like getting gigs part is always i i mean i know how to book a tour but you know i'm not gonna go to some like industry event and hand out business cards it's just not really within it's not even the thing anymore (laughs) yeah i i I don't know like i'm kind of at a loss with all that shit I, i i i don't know yeah i don't really know either um but it does seem like some people are better at the the like playing the industry thing than other people it seems or, like that way, better right? than me for sure yeah um, that has to be it right yeah I right think so yeah I, I i don't know like um <laughs> I, I won't say the name i got um there, there's a festival and i'd reached out to them i've got uh-huh. this new project that you know i've been working on i said hey this is really excited about this project you know is this something you'd be interested in and the guy wrote back and he was like sounds kind of interesting um send me a cdr of the music <laughs> And I said, uh, okay, you know, I, I, how about I Dropbox the music to you? You know, like, you can have it right now, you yeah, know? Totally. <laughs> and he's like, yes, but please also send a CDR. And so Wait, it, did he actually want a CDR or just a CD? CDR. Like, he wanted it to be a burned copy? I of mean, a- it's, to, you know, to be fair, it's an unreleased <laughs> oh, okay, project. Okay, okay. Um, uh-huh. But I was almost like, is this guy just like seeing if I will jump through hoops, you know, as like a test of whether or not he'll book this right. thing? Right, I don't know. I just, it just, it. The call for physical things always like, come on, it's. Do you know how much it costs to mail something? To I don't even care about one, that. I just like, like I don't have CDRs anymore. Yeah. Like I don't yeah, know if course. I if I go to Rite Aid that they're going to be carrying them either. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I have. It's very strange to me. The external like drive on this my piece of yeah. garbage right here. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, burning CDs. It's crazy. The the book making thing is CDs hard. as well. It's like. Uh. Are you still, you're still printing CDs for your music? Ah uh, yeah yeah. I mean, I like buying CDs. I like having a physical copy of stuff. Yeah. But it's seeming less and less uh, relevant. Well, here's the thing that's bugging me out is like, I have this friend, one of my favorite things about um, about physical music is mm. being able to give copies of my stuff to my friends. Yeah. Especially when my friends aren't musicians. Mm. You know, so I was hanging out with this friend of mine the other night who's a chef and he um, he was like, man, you know, hook me up with your music. And I was like, cool, man, I'm going to bring you a stack of shit tomorrow. And he was like, what? And I was like, I'm gonna bring you some CDs, and he's like, I don't have a CD player. And in that moment, I realized like the physical, the the thing that's preventing him uh-huh. from listening to my music is the CD itself. Yeah. How twisted is that? Oh, it's crazy. I mean, some people, it's like unless if it's on Spotify, then they're, they're not, not gonna, gonna hear it. Yeah. It's fucking 
fucking bullshit. It's it's awful. Yeah. It's a real low point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's cool that like it's cool that we have access to everything, but like I I actually like handing something to someone. And totally. And like here's, you know. I like buying something physical and I will listen to something more if I have it on in a physical form than if I just than if I download files. Yeah. Kind of just the way that I don't know, my psychology works. Yeah. And I think a lot of people's too. It just feels like it's more well, it doesn't valuable. Feel, yeah, I mean, somehow. it's like something that everyone's talked about, but it doesn't, yeah. I don't feel like the project's been completed with any sort of like, for me, the fanfare of it is holding the object and seeing mm-hmm. how the print job came out and, yeah, you know? Yeah. Do you like recording? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a different thing than playing live, for sure. Mm-hmm. Have you been in the studio a lot lately? Yeah, yeah, a bunch, a bunch of uh, unreleased records. Really? <laughs> yeah. Of yours? No, <laughs> no other people's stuff. But yeah, this year I was like, yeah, I was in the studio quite a lot. Um, there's a lot of things I'm excited about that are coming out over the next. Like what? Um, well, I guess Matt Mitchell's record just came out. Uh-huh. Um, Pouting Grimace. And that's like a big deal for him. It's like a large yeah, band, yeah, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was recorded in. Um, we didn't record all at the same time. Because it was not logistically... Because it's like 10 plot. musicians or something? 12, I think. Yeah. Um, it's also just really tricky music, so I think it was yeah. easier to like layer some things. But yeah, that I, I'm really happy with that, how that came out. Uh, Jen Shu's record is coming out. Oh, in, wow. Like, I think this week, maybe. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, John Hollenbeck has a new large ensemble record that I'm on that's coming out in January... This is great. There's a Ken Thompson thing that's coming out sometimes. Ken Thompson. Uh, Clarinetist. From um, um, Bang on a Can? Yeah. Yeah. He has a jazz sextet Holy thing shit. that's coming out. Uh, this Chicago saxophone player, Jeff Bradfield, um, who was the guy who showed me Gary Thomas okay. in the first place. He has a nine-piece band thing that we just recorded that's going to come out. Yeah, so a bunch of... There's pr- other things, I think, that I'm forgetting. Oh, Adam Hopkins has a sextet thing that'll come out. He's a good point. dude. Yeah. Great yeah. guy. And are you, yeah. are you are you touring a lot? Uh, I have been recently. Um, yeah, after this month, I'm just here. Yeah, hanging out. But you're doing it. You're like in New York. Yeah, a working musician. Yeah, somehow that happened. It feels good. <laughs> <laughs> it's really like not. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do it through next year. I mean, who knows? It's 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 ten years financially. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Are but, your parents supportive? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That helps, I think. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Do you hear that? Yeah. What's that? It's my neighbor. They have this. It's it's crazy. Like I don't. I, I don't have kids. Don't have any interest in kids or anything like that. But <laughs> they have these two kids, sweet, yep. nice little, well-behaved kids, mm-hmm. and then they just had a third one. Mm-hmm. And it's only like I think the baby's definitely less than a year old. But this, I I know already this baby's a problem child. <laughs> I hear it screeching. Yeah. All the time. Have you been living here for the entire? time that they've since they started having kids when we moved into this apartment their first kid was a little maybe one-year-old okay and you know so now they have these three kids and i, I just I, I look at this baby like in the elevator and i hear it <laughs> screeching you know all the time i just know that like this this kid's gonna have a hard time you got a bad egg <laughs> yeah it's you know Damn. what I, it's it's true like uh-huh. you just sometimes you look at kids and you're like i act <laughs> not gonna so turn that's out. That's the one that's screeching right now. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And it's just it's it sounds the like tone, 
the tone of the screeching uh-huh. is so much more troubling than the average baby's cries. Yeah, that that it didn't sound it sounded kind of like a bird. Right. Yeah. This nasty little bird. Poor <laughs> 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 <For> parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. They got two good ones. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's weird because it's like a one bedroom apartment they live in. Maybe, oh, yeah. maybe I don't know. I don't. Oh know. wow. It's really weird. It's really weird. Um, and you're in Brooklyn. Yeah. In you sun, like it. Sunset Park. Yeah, it's great. It's great down there. Yeah. Tacos. Oh man, tacos are my life. Are they really? Well, you didn't have that back in DC, <laughs> did you? Nope. Yeah. I don't think I had an avocado until I was like 22 or something. Are you serious? Yeah, I think so. Do you go back to back back there much? Um, it seems like a very safe place. <laughs> yeah, I think it is. Yeah. I don't go back there that often. My parents don't live in my hometown anymore. They live in Vancouver. Oh, that's better. Um, yeah, it's totally better. Yeah. Um, I am very happy that I don't go back. Um, to Kelowna that often though that being said I just played there because uh, there's these awesome guys who are running a really cool series there for experimental music and in Kelowna I think Kelowna's just changed a lot since when I lived there yeah when I was there it was kind of like I don't know people were really into sports and I just didn't really feel like the being an artist was something that even like registered in anybody's mm-hmm. heads. Um, I felt like definitely a bit of an outsider mm-hmm. culturally, I think, mm-hmm. even though I didn't really know who I was or what I wanted sure. to do. Um, but yeah, I think Vancouver has gotten so expensive that a lot of cool people have been moving to the interior of BC oh, from wow. Vancouver because they can't afford to live there anymore. Right. So the, yeah, there's these two guys who run this really cool series in Kelowna. So Kelowna might be cooler now, but I am glad that my parents live in Vancouver. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but at the time it was, it was yeah. not the, it was a tricky place to grow up. Yeah. Or just like, yeah, I don't, I didn't really understand where a lot of people were coming from. I think that's common for musicians yeah. wherever they grow up. Yeah. I think so um, too. Especially in smaller places mm-hmm. where there's, you know, not a lot of uh, divergent ideas. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Cool. Well, I'm glad you came over. Yeah. Thanks for talking. Thanks for having me over. Nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was Anna Weber. She's a great musician. uh, From what I can tell, a really nice person. Check her out. Go to AnnaKristenWeber.com. I would say definitely check out her trio with Holland Beck and Matt Mitchell. Um, All the music from today's show has been from that group and it's, it's great. I really like it a lot. Um, I look forward to digging more into it. Go to AnnaKristenWeber.com. She's got a lot of tour dates coming up. Uh, she stays busy, and, you know, she's well worth your time. AnnaKristenWeber.com. Come to Roulette next week, December 5th. Uh, I, I'll be keeping score of who isn't there, and I'll be sure to, you know, somehow passive-aggressively deal with you if you're not there. December 5th, Roulette. That's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Hope you're staying warm. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.